Welcome to Philly Prime. I'm Dave Schratweiser. Joining us on the podcast today is a good friend of mine for a long, long time, former reporter, former communications director, and then executive director of the New Jersey State Commission of Investigation, Lee Seglum. Lee, thanks for joining the program. Thanks for having me on. I think it's a great idea that you started this. I appreciate you saying that. And uh, Lee is recently retired, uh, like I am, but I'm semi-retired because I still do a little TV here and there, and we're doing the podcast, things like that. Lee, do me a favor. Let's start off by kind of telling people, if they don't know, what the State Commission of Investigation does in New Jersey. We know you go after organized crime and things like that, but talk about that a little bit. Sure. It's an independent fact-finding agency with subpoena power. It's kind of a, a unique bird in the law enforcement community. We don't prosecute or get indictments or convictions. We leave that to the expert, you know, the cops and prosecutors while they're doing their job on the streets. The SCI is flying at about 5,000 feet, looking at the wider system, looking at flaws in the system that give rise to that criminality to begin with. Um, We have subpoena power. We do a lot of... uh, I keep saying we because I just left there. There you go. Let's break that habit. (laughs) In any event... um, They uh, do uh, threat assessments on organized crime, a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse investigations. Uh, I was hired there in 1994 to do basically some uh, PIO work, although at the SCI that didn't consist of much more than saying no comment when people called. Right, and come to our Um, hearing when we hold a public hearing. Exactly. So, But mainly what I did was write most of the reports of the investigation since then, probably 50 in all. Let's talk a little bit. You guys uh, have the, uh, the power to subpoena people behind closed doors or in open hearings. You had open public hearings. Correct. After those public hearings, a report is written. Uh, released publicly and then sometimes passed on to law enforcement, the attorney general's office or whatever you deem appropriate. And it's up to them to, uh, or the legislature, if you make recommendations on legislation, how to proceed, those kind kind of things. And it's been a pretty successful formula for the SCI. It has been. I think the legislature, particularly in the last 10 years, has been pretty responsive to our recommendations. There's been a whole bunch of laws changed and, and, and reforms made as a result of the SCI's work. So, yeah. Let's talk about uh, uh, closed-door meetings and subpoenas, because over, sure. the, over the years, the SCI has uh, brought in some real big names in organized crime. Tick off a few for me, if you can. Uh, Angelo Bruno, uh, probably the classic example, who fought an, an SCI subpoena in the late uh, mid-late 70s, actually went to prison. The only jail time Angelo Bruno ever served was because he uh, was held in contempt for refusing to testify, even though he was granted limited immunity. He finally showed up on March 20th, 1980, uh, a day later, although it wasn't the proximate cause, it didn't do him much good. He was assassinated in Center City, Philadelphia. And why did he fight that so much? He just didn't want to say a word to you guys, basically. Well, I think that's the position that most of these uh, top wise guys were taking. The SCI, when it started in 1969, 1970, um, 50 years ago now, was hauling in a lot of top mob figures back then, and I think a lot of them decided, well, this doesn't look so well. Even though they came in and took the fifth or they weren't going to say anything, it looked a little shady to some of their cohorts. A lot of them moved out of state. A lot of them went to Florida at that time. So, yeah. yeah. Ralph Natale, did he come in for uh, an interview? I believe he did at I, some point. I believe he did at one point, yeah. yeah and that was a big, uh, tense moment. I remember there's a black-and-white photo of him kind of crunched up at the, at the microphone, not really wanting to be there. Right. They, they're, like, allergic to appearances to the uh, SCI. Kind of uh, a couple of other guys that I understand he gave some closed-door testimony. Philip Leonetti, who was— Billy Nikki, and Eddie. Nikki Scarfro's 
number two man. We uh, had somebody spend a long time with Phil Leonetti after he flipped uh, and uh, debriefed him. We, we did a couple of investigations on organized crime intrusion into bars and liquor stores and that sort of thing. So, yeah. He was a real healthy <coughs> uh, witness in those areas at that point. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Now in the witness protection program. Tommy <laughs> Del Giorno, uh, former mob yep. capo under Nicky Scarfo, also made an appearance. He did. One of the big subpoenas that backfired on the SCI, I think, was in 1969. They served uh, in this broad outreach on all elements of organized crime. They served Frank Sinatra. Uh. Uh, he was not pleased, uh, from what I've heard by all accounts. In the summer of 1969, at one point, he had his yacht docked at Atlantic Highlands mm. and was actually served on board. He That's fought, at the Jersey Shore. If yeah, he, know that. He, uh, he fought that subpoena for about seven or eight months. Finally showed up uh, in February of uh, 1970, I guess, called the thing a whole three-ring circus. I've read the transcript. It was basically a nothing burger. <laughs> like, who did you know? Did you ever know this guy? Did you know Angelo Bruno? Blah, 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 and on and on. And, and you know, it didn't amount to much. But it, it was kind of a, a moment, I think, where the SCI got a little bit over the, its ski tips. Uh, they, they were a, a, kind of a black eye. Yeah, I think I heard some accusations back in the day like that, that they were, you know, kind of uh, grandstanding a little bit, calling in some of these big names and stuff like that, I guess, Frank. Well, but it's worth bringing them in for a shot, right? It was, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, but you have, to, you have to realize what the circumstances were that caused caused the, the SCI to be created in the first place. You know, in the 1960s, this country was basically blind about organized crime. The FBI wasn't even, J. Edgar Hoover wasn't paying much attention to it. Um, finally exploded into the public eye with a series in Life magazine, which basically showed New Jersey as ground zero for where these guys lived. I mean, you people were appalled by some of the stuff in there. This guy, um, uh, Richie the Boot Boyardo, who yes, was a Genovese capo in North Jersey, he had an estate in Livingston that were reputed had an incinerator on site uh, that wasn't all used for trash burning. You didn't want to be summoned to Richie the Boot's place by any means. Then you had this guy, Simone de Cavalcani, who wound up becoming the godfather of New Jersey's only homegrown organized yeah, crime, crime family. family. Yes. John Riggie's um, uh, Sam, favorite Sam the family. Plumber. Yeah. He, uh, life described him as having been in uh, in the in the designing a uh, garbage disposal that would be big enough to, as life described it, turn a human being into a meatball. Mm. So people saw this stuff and they were appalled and it forced the legislature in New Jersey into action. They created the, the Division of Criminal Justice in the Attorney General's office, which does criminal investigations. And right. then somebody said, hey, w wait a second, what about these cases where, you know, there's not necessarily criminal activity, but something that's wrong with the system? And that's when they invented the SCI. And that's kind of really at the root of what the SCI does, right? What's wrong with the system? It's not only about organized crime. Sometimes it's about corruption. Exactly. It's about industries, businesses that are doing things, skirting right. the edges of the law, maybe not breaking the law, but you guys are looking for those things that just simply aren't proper and ethical. Right. And sometimes it's hard to describe that mission to people because they see it in black and white, crime or no crime. Well, yeah. we're in the gray area. Yeah. So. Talk to me about when uh, organized crime figures uh, appear— uh, either behind closed doors or out there in the public. It's over at the state house normally, right, in a big hearing room, mm -hmm. right? A real tense. Everybody's waiting for the organized crime figure, members of the Pagans, motorcycle gang. Exactly. People like that to come up. Uh, what, what's kind of—and you ask questions, 
So the investigators, uh, when you're getting ready for that, how do you get ready to kind of grill those guys, knowing kind of in the back of your mind that they're probably going to take the fifth, but let's get the question on the record. Well, that's what you do. You First of all, they're brought into executive, private executive session, and they're questioned under oath at that point. Then you fi- you know you can find out and see exactly where they're going. Usually they'll take, a fit, take the fifth in, in that venue, and then when they're subpoenaed to appear in a public hearing, um, again, they're required to uh, or face contempt. Uh, they'll show up and we'll ask the series of questions. And sometimes it's a pretty dramatic moment where you have these people sitting there being confronted with ugly facts and they, you know, can't take, say anything. Take, exactly. Take and the usually the amendment. lawyers sitting right next to them, giving them the nudge and they lean over. Right. Exactly. Should I take the fifth. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And they have that line down pretty well. I guess you've heard it probably a hundred different ways. It's got different ways of saying it, but basically it adds up to the same thing. They clam up and they're not going to say anything. All right. During your tenure there, uh, anybody you kind of want to highlight uh, like that that came before uh, either in private or public session there? And, and and you guys always do, when you do the report, say someone appeared in a private session. Exactly. Uh, I'm assuming unless it's a protected witness kind of situation where right. you don't want to put anybody in jeopardy. But uh, anybody kind of stick out, any story stick out uh, for you? Probably the most prominent person that I remember who I met personally beforehand, and he came to testify at an organized crime status report hearing we had maybe 10 years ago was Ron Previty, who was a soldier in the uh, Philadelphia organized crime family. From Hamilton, New Jersey? And a longtime FBI and state police informant. Uh, quite a character, but yeah, he he made he made a bit of a sensation. A sure. big storyteller too, right? Absolutely. Did he uh, share a few stories with you guys mm-hmm. behind closed doors, or? Uh... Yeah, he did, but you know it was basically the same thing. He was a big earner for for the mob um, and worked in Atlantic City a lot, uh, raised a lot of money for them, and um, kind of you know. ran Hamilton for organized crime, from what I remember. George Anastasia, my partner on uh, exactly, Mob Talk right. Sit Down, who joined us on the show couple times already uh, wrote a book the last gangster about ron that's Previty. right have you uh, have you read that or f- your your impressions of ron previty tell me about that uh big guy um wise guy wise guy tough <laughs> talker uh has a bit of a philosophical edge to him as well he's thought a lot about what he's done in his life uh i think he's a guy who was full of regrets um but you know a realist uh s- saw the world as as black and white and mm-hmm. um as he put it, made as much as he could out of it. Yeah, Phil, former Philadelphia police officer. Absolutely. Um, Knew the inside track. Right. True. Actually uh, was paid by the FBI close to a million dollars over the years. Um, went and did seminars and stuff like that for law enforcement agencies all over the world, even to Europe. The thing that was remarkable to me about him, um, and I guess it didn't worry him, was why nobody ever whacked him or why he didn't seem to be afraid of that. Because he was going out there talking out of school a lot to a lot of people yeah. and circulating in public. So yeah. I had uh, many a uh, walk-up interview with Mr. Previty uh, back in the day. And the funny thing is, even when he flipped and he testified against Joey Merlino and all that crew, and he testified in the Stanford cases and things like that, he still lived down here in South Jersey, a 15-minute ride from Philadelphia. I know. And didn't live in fear. If you watch— I, Yeah, I, I don't understand that part of it at all. Yeah. And, and if you watch the guy, which I did numerous times in an undercover capacity when we were working on stories about him, he went about his daily business in South Jersey, and then he appeared in front of the SCI and uh, dressed up and 
Right. Uh, a lot of braggadocio a little bit, but he, he, he loved to tell stories, and he didn't mind telling them in public. Nope, and a tough-looking guy. Not a guy you'd want to meet in a dark alley some late, late some night. And, but that's the kind of guy you want to bring before the SCI because he does have a wealth of knowledge. And Absolutely. He will, and he will answer questions, right? And he, he did. did. He did answer questions. He was very cooperative. That's correct. So he kind of sticks out as uh, one of your favorites so. uh, during yeah. your time, at least as a productive exactly. witness yeah. and stuff like that. When people fight the subpoenas, Lee, how hard do you guys go at them? To make sure you get him in. Now, obviously, you stay on him because, as you said, with Sinatra, he came in a year later. Angelo, Bruno came in a year later. Those kind of things. You guys don't let up. It's a tenacious kind of— No, it is. And, you know, lawyers get into the game, and they, you know, these guys lawyer up. Uh, and those, that, you know, play game. There's gamesmanship that goes on. But I think they finally recognize that what's the point of it. A lot of times you'll find people who don't understand exactly what we do. They're a little bit afraid of what— you know, because they think we're a traditional law enforcement agency, right. and in fact, we're not. Um, although we do have an obligation, if we do uncover, if the SEI doesn't cover evidence suggesting criminal misconduct, we have to refer that to you know the attorney general's office. And you do often the U.S. attorney, right? And and it's resulted in a number of uh, significant criminal cases over the years. Anyone you want to highlight here? Um, uh, not off the top of my right, head. Well, let's think about that. We can move on. We can move on a little bit. You guys look at organized crime. Not just organized crime. We'll get to some of the other stuff you guys have looked at in the past. But in a number of industries, uh, the one that kind of sticks out for me and for you, because you and I were both running around being investigative reporters back in the day, was the trash business. Right. Solid uh, waste. Talk, the, talk to me about that. Legacy. Huge moneymaker. Right. Uh, the first investigation the SCI did in 1969 after it was created was into uh, mob intrusion into the solid waste uh, hauling and trucking industry. Um, over the years, it's revisited that area repeatedly. In the mid-'80s, the SCI's work resulted finally in legislation to create a licensing and criminal background check requirement for individuals who were going to be in that industry. Because before that, there was no checks. There correct? was no checks at all. So Anybody was, could be in that business. Right, Wild West. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, the problem is at that time, mid-'80s, they left recycling out of the picture. And recycling was a— a new industry. Up and comer, yep. They didn't want to upset the economics of it and whatever, but they never revisited that. So yeah. as time went on, you know, the SCI kept looking at this and they discovered situations where uh, formerly uh, mobbed up people who were kicked out of the business in New Jersey wound up going into New York and having other people or their relatives front for them to get a solid waste license or get into recycling. Um, and this led, led the SCI and our investigators into looking at um, what was happening with some of the uh, demolition debris and contaminated yeah, dirt disposal. Why did they want to be in that business? How, how was that a moneymaker for the mob? Uh, well, basically just the way Tony Soprano in fiction made his, some of his bucks. Uh, what happens is that you have uh, lots of demand for getting rid of uh, contaminated demolition debris and dirt and that sort of thing, construction debris, uh, costs a lot of money to get that placed uh, in a proper disposal right. facility. Right, doesn't go to the same landfill as your household trash. No, it's it's called Class B recycling or solid waste, so it has to be treated in a different way, and it's pretty expensive to get rid of that stuff. So um, what you have is this sort of underworld of dirt brokers, they're called, who will line up... Um, uh, demolition companies. Uh, we found one in the Bronx that where this happened, where you had the dirt broker hook up truckers to go up to the Bronx to pick up the stuff, bring it down as if it's being recycled, and then go dump it 
uh, wherever they pleased, uh, on the edge of Raritan Bay. Um, we found this one facility, which I'm sure you're interested in, in Palmyra and Burlington yeah, County. Yeah, we're going to get into that in a little bit more depth in a, yeah. little, in a little bit. Some favorite targets in the trash industry, if I remember from back in my day, was Carmine Franco up Carmine in Franco. <laughs> Talk to me about that. He's kept, a big mover and shaker. Kept coming back, uh, reincarnated himself He had like nine times. lives with you guys, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not sure, I'm sure his relatives maybe are in, it, are in the business still, but yeah, he was uh, up and down, up and down constantly. And you guys were kind of uh, targeting him for a, a bit. Did he ever come in and testify, or did he? I don't take believe the fifth? he did. He didn't. Uh, I think he skirted that quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was one of those guys you'd see headlines on him all the time. Uh, whether the attorney general's office in New Jersey was chasing him around, or the FBI up Absolutely. in North Jersey uh, seemed to be everybody's favorite target in the garbage industry, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So let's people move. are always amazed to hear how much money can be made out of yeah. garbage, but it's yeah. true. I mean, it's very lucrative. Some of the things you guys suggested to the legislature when they finally listened about this issue and keeping organized crime and the mob out of the garbage industry, what kind of things did you guys suggest they do? Uh, well, first of all, criminal background checks, you know, uh, who, who's who in the company, uh, wh who's got a financial interest in the company, uh, the, the whole nine yards of, of who makes up the company, where they're coming from, what they're doing, so you know who you're dealing with. Yeah, no show jobs, correct? No show jobs, uh, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, Didn't we talk about the uh, former head of the Philadelphia organized crime family, uh, Joseph Legambi in that area? We did. He was, uh, I believed he was placed uh, at least ostensibly on the payroll, but uh, basically was done it so he could get health health insurance benefits through one of these companies. Yeah, and that uh, he did not hide from that too much. Uh, said he went to work, uh, was a sales guy for them, I, I believe, if, uh, if well, that that's was how, the testimony. Right. That's how a lot of a lot of this stuff goes down. These people will hook up as sales representatives or, or consultants. That's another thing you see all the time. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I believe the trash company in question there had the Philadelphia produce market back in the day. And uh, I have been on surveillances of Joe Legambian's have seen him coming and going from the produce market in a, a nice new Cadillac, uh, <laughs> I guess, in his capacity as, uh, at the time. Uh, that, and I believe at, at some point that was testified to at a federal trial it was. Uh, in Philadelphia. That's correct. Uh, and uh, they also kind of took him over the coals for that and the benefits he got and how much money, that kind of thing. Uh, I believe most of those charges, though, he's been acquitted of and clearly didn't go to jail for. Uh, 2010. I think they retried him in uh, 2011 or 2012. I forget the exact dates. Uh, but he uh, is home and retired now. Ah, uh, any thoughts about ever bringing him before the SCI? Uh, at this point, probably not. Yeah. Uh, we got bigger, or the SCI, I think, has got bigger fish to fry uh, yeah. going forward, sure. Yeah. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, the guy everybody talks about down here, Joey Merlino. Any Joey thoughts Merlino. Uh, over the years about kind of bringing him in for a little uh, session, either behind closed doors or whatever? Not that he would have said anything, but... Uh uh, I think the opportunity really to do that for any meaningful purpose has passed. Yeah. Uh, the most recent investigation that we did into the solid waste and recycling industry started maybe nine years ago. Uh, and the SCI was taking a look at uh, this indiscriminate dumping of demolition and construction debris. 
our investigators came across a site in Palmyra, Burlington County, right on the edge of Pensacon Creek that drains into the Delaware River just north of Philly on the New Jersey side. Yeah, it's uh, right uh, off of 130 and 73. Right. Correct? Right before the Tacony Palmyra right. Bridge when you're going over into Philly. And it looked like a sleepy old mulching operation, you know, where they had tree stumps ground and that sort of thing. Well, well this individual, a convicted felon out of Florida by the name of Brad Serkin, uh came into control of that site back uh, in the early what, 2012, 13, that, that period, um, and wound up uh, getting bankrolled. I think we found, the SCI found evidence of $50,000 coming from a soldier in the Bonanno crime family in New York. Right, you actually had the check as a as a, a piece of evidence in one of your hearings. Exactly. Um, so he just opened the gates to that place for what turned out to be almost 400,000 cubic yards of all kinds of junk. If you don't like the, for example, the uh, if you hate the reconstruction project on I-95 in Philly, which is going on forever, you'll hate it even more to learn that a lot of the debris from that construction project wound up in that you know, illegal landfill on, in Palmyra. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, uh, I did a big <clears throat> investigative piece for Fox 29 a few years back while you guys were investigating this. And uh, we went out and talked to folks who owned businesses along Route 73 right near the landfill. And we heard stories oh, of trucks sure. by the hundreds lined up from the gate of that landfill out onto Route 73 all the way down like half a mile yeah, you, down Route 7. You couldn't believe how much stuff was in there. You guys watched this, right? Our, yeah, our you guys pe- took pictures. I saw pictures of trucks our, lined up. Tell yeah. me how many trucks were going oh, in. Oh, hundreds. Our guys went in there, and you, you could see stuff piled, this debris piled 15, 20 feet in the air. And it was the worst part of it was some of it was mixed with what, what wound up being publicly available topsoil and mulch. So, you know, who knows what you got to put around your flower beds if you were using stuff that came from that facility. Yeah. The thing about Serkin is that he met Joey Merlino in a halfway house after right, both had served prison, time in federal prison. Down in Florida, yeah. So uh, that's where Serkin would be seen hanging out in his, what did he have, a cigar uh, bar or something down in Boca? Yeah, it's, Boca yeah. it's Joey's one of Joey's favorite places. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I believe from rereading some of the SCI testimony and some of the stuff we did in the story, that he meets him in the halfway house. They start to hang out after they get out. He's driving Joey around. Yeah, he was his driver, basically, in yeah. South Florida, right. Yeah. So uh, that happens. Uh, a couple of years into it now, we have trucks after trucks after trucks going in there. And some of it came from some other projects. There was a project in Camden. There was, was a that was charter school soil. in Camden full of uh, contaminated stuff, exactly. It was a lot there. They were excavating a lot to build right. a charter school, correct? So we investigated that whole area, I think, four separate times over nine years, and every time made the same recommendation to the legislature. Could you please include these guys in Class B recycling in the yeah. criminal background check at a minimum? They ignored it for nine years. Finally, last month, yeah. they enacted legislation which folded that component of recycling into the the A901 solid waste requirements, and Governor Murphy signed it into law. So that was significant. Let's talk about uh, the environmental, potential environmental damage from that operation in Palmyra. Sure. Uh, we talked to the officials in Palmyra Township at the time, and, and they were suing the company that owned the site and then leased the site out to Circuit and those kind of guys. And I've seen numbers as high as $10 million there. I believe the state attorney general now in New Jersey the new state attorney general has also filed suit in that situation. No criminal charges. 
do you think there should have been criminal charges there? Did you guys recommend criminal charges in, in that operation? Uh, we, we did. Uh, you know, it's it's an environmental disaster uh, sitting there. It's sitting above a groundwater, a shallow groundwater table. It's on the edge of Pensalkin Creek, which, as I indicated, flows into the Delaware River. And you don't know what's in there. There's all kinds. Of, the, the, nobody tested any of the stuff that was dumped there. Mm. Every time we've gone into one of these places and had labs do tests, we found cancer-causing agents, other toxic materials mixed in with all this crap. So, I mean, it's it's a mess. And the, the, you're right. The downside is, gonna, is to all this stuff is extensive, deep cost to the taxpayers. Um, and these guys who are doing it, don't give a damn about it at all because they're making a buck up front. Yeah. Now, so I never got to ask you this question back in the day when we did our story, but, you know, you have a friend of Joey Merlino's from Boca Raton, Florida, ends up in South Jersey somehow in control of a landfill, uh, bankrolled by $50,000 from organized crime figures in New York, allegedly, never been charged, but that's kind of right. what you guys brought out in testimony. He had some relationship through marriage to the Lucchese crime family That's right, up in North Jersey. So question is, was the Philly mob in here somewhere? Was anybody from the Philly mob kind of orchestrating this or whatever? How does a guy from Boca Raton end up in Palmyra, New Jersey, just across the bridge from Philadelphia? Well, I think my read of it was that this guy, Sirkin, was an accomplished con artist anyway. I mean, he and fraudster, he had, had already been, he had been sent to federal prison for some mm. scam. I can't remember exactly what it was. Uh, so he was always on the lookout for this. And I think when he hooked up with Merlino, those guys cooked up a deal and and this is where it wound up. Right. Uh, Let's be clear, Joey's never been charged in anything like that. You guys correct. have recommended criminal charges, but that hasn't taken place. Has not. Uh, let's say this, though. Brad Sarkin was indicted later with Joey Merlino, Joey Merlino in a New York City organized crime uh, indictment with 46 people, the East Coast LCN, as they called it. Correct. Uh, and most of those people pled guilty. The only one who didn't was Joey Merlino, who went to trial, ended up doing about a year in prison. He's now in a halfway house in Florida. Bradley Serkin is still in jail. I think he has a year, a year and a half okay. left. He pled guilty in that case. So uh, their relationship even played out in an indictment uh, out of New York, which was a big ballyhooed indictment. Got a lot of headlines, front page of New York Post, New York Daily News, all the papers over here kind of thing. So that's kind of kind of well established. So to bring that full circle here, you're happy now that at this point the legislature has acted so those kind of places can't exist anymore. Well, finally, uh, it just goes to show you how long it takes to to get the wheels of justice turned around to the right place. Um, uh, but all is well that ends well. Yeah. Um, other industries that organized crime was involved in that you guys have kind of looked into in recent years? Uh, car dealership uh, kind of thing? Oh, uh, yeah. right, the used car dealerships. Um that, that actually was a brilliant piece of enterprise work by somebody uh, affiliated with um, the Bonanno crime family, a guy by the name of Louis Civillo, known as Louis the Leg Breaker, got the brilliant idea to buy a, an abandoned warehouse in Bridgeton down in Cumberland County, do some cheap renovations, and it build, build it out all these um, tiny cubicles, all in an effort to make sure that you could meet if you rented one of these places and you were a used car dealer, to get a license, you had to meet certain minimum requirements. Mm. He even hired a stooge to be the guy who would be the designated representative to make to make it look like whoever rented there had a presence, which you're required to do in New Jersey. Anyway, it drew all of these people from 
uh, out of state who had been booted out of New York or lost their ticket to sell used cars in Connecticut or Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, and he would charge them, you know, six, seven hundred bucks a month, two or three hundred of these dealers there at any given time, do the math, made a lot of money out of it, looked legitimate. The problem was that we found the underlying problem was um, these dealers, a lot of them were engaged in a panoply of criminal activity, money laundering, tax evasion, consumer fraud, you name it. So it was an example of uh, a seemingly legitimate enterprise being used as a cloak for, for uh, runaway criminal activity. And the best part, mm. the best part was that Sevilla was protected in Trenton by a high-profile, powerful lobbyist who was a former director of the Division of Motor Vehicles who managed to, to get inside DMV or the Motor Vehicle Commission and bring his influence to bear on maintaining, helping to maintain the status quo at that, at that multi-dealer location in, in Bridgeton. And you guys took testimony on this? You did a report on we this? We did. Yep. And Absolutely. it's all down there in, in black and white in a report, correct? It's all down there in black and white in a report. But just another example of how they can kind of edge into what would appear to be a legitimate uh, business. At that exactly. Point. All right, Lee, listen, I want to tell you that it's been a great having you on the show. We're going to have you back. My pleasure. On, on some more topics that the SCI, when it's uh, uh, thoroughly educating, even for me, who covered the SCI for a lot of times and, 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 and spent uh, a lot of time looking at the very same things you guys looked at. And uh, I always appreciate the fact that you guys did things out in the public like that. And uh, Well, I can did, assure you that the SCI, the SCI watched your work as well. So I appreciate that. Thanks for joining us. Uh, that's uh, Philly Prime for this week. Uh, uh, we'll be back next time. Thanks for joining us and uh, keep listening.